let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word, and we pray that you would make it clear to us and help us apply it to our lives so that we may honor you in our workplaces and so that ultimately your gospel would spread as we live in such a way that calls attention to your worth and greatness without getting in the way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my sermon today is The Christian View of Work. And I will be preaching from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, which I will read right now. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. And if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn here and follow along. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Sixty years ago, the Christian thinker Dorothy Sayers said, we desperately need a Christian view of work. In recent years, there has been signs that she is finally being taken seriously. There is more and more being written on faith and work, and there are even faith and work movements cropping up all over the place. So there are great signs that finally... We are starting to take this seriously. But there is still a lot of work to do as Christians. Most of us still don't have a good idea of what it means to be a Christian at work. We aren't clear on whether our work truly matters to God or if it does, why it does. This often results in a lack of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in our work. A quiet desperation of the modern workforce. Further, this lack of clarity on the Christian view of work has even larger consequences beyond ourselves, as important as those are. It actually hinders the spread of the gospel. For if we don't do our work well and out of respect for others, the New Testament teaches us that it diminishes the reputation of the gospel in the world. On the other hand, doing our work in a truly Christian way can have a massive impact on the world because it lends credibility to our profession of faith. The potential impact that we can have through the workplace is so large that Billy Graham once said, I believe that the next great work of God in revival will be in the workplace. I believe that Billy Graham was right. I believe we see signs that this may be what God is beginning to do. But if this is going to happen, 
we need to have a clear, biblical, and interesting doctrine of work. God will not move in the workplace if we simply fail to understand how our faith relates to our work and what it means to be truly Christian at work. If God is going to do a movement in the workplace, we need to know how our faith relates to our work so we can truly serve Him in our work. So that's what we're going to look at today. A clear, robust, and interesting biblical doctrine of work. In other words, I want to show you a view of work that will enable you to have an impact on the unbelieving world and which will bring you more fulfillment as well. It will also generally make you more effective and successful in your work, though that's not the first point. The first point is, or the, the reason this ultimately matters is because this is the right way to go about work as a Christian. To see this, we're going to look at three questions that this text answers for us. First, how does our faith relate to our work? Second, how do we glorify God in our work? And third, what will the results of this be? So how does our faith relate to our work? How do we glorify God in our work? And what will the results of this be? We'll look at these one at a time. So first, how does our faith relate to our work? So to answer this, we need to back up and ask ourselves, what is the purpose of the Christian life altogether? What is God's purpose for us? Well, there are a lot of different ways we can answer that, but since we're here in Ephesians, let's go to how Paul answers this in Ephesians. And he answers it in chapter 2, verse 10. This is one of the fundamental passages on the Christian life. Paul says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul says, We're created in Christ for good works, in order to do good for others. But what does Paul mean by good works? A lot of times, we create this segmented view of our Christian lives. We think of good works primarily in spiritual terms, as things like evangelism and giving and prayer and attending Bible studies. And obviously, those are all very good things. Those are all good works. But what we haven't done as good of a job at is understanding how the rest of our lives fits within the Christian life. Things like commuting to work, going to meetings, doing email, just going about our jobs. How do those relate to God's call on us to do good works? Now, this is really important because I did a calculation once. I tried to add up the number of hours in a week where we spend in spiritual activities. And I was generous and even assumed a one-hour quiet time every day. Then on top of that, attending church and things like that. And the unfortunate thing is, that still doesn't add up to a whole lot of time. There's, I forget, I forget the exact number of hours in a week. It's something like 168 or something like that. And it amounted, the so-called spiritual activities of life amounted only to about one-tenth of our weeks. So what's, what's this other nine-tenth of our lives? What's going on there? How should we understand the activities that happen there? Well, one perspective some people take is that they don't really know how it fits with the purpose of our lives. And so they try to minimize it. 
This results in a view of work that doesn't value it in itself, but sees it simply as a means of earning money to support your family and give to missionaries. But then your real life happens off the job, at home and at church. Now, obviously, the things we do at home and at church are very important, but the Bible has to have something to say about what we do on our jobs as well, because that is a massive chunk of our lives. Most people are working 40, 50, even 60 hours a week. We need to know how that connects to our faith, and we need to know that it connects in more ways than just as a means of giving to missions, as important as missions is. We need to know how that time at work matters in itself. Now, there are even some secular thinkers on this uh, that go wrong. For example, there was a popular book a few years ago called The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And he argues in that book, he says, I take for granted that the perfect job is the one that takes the least time. He assumes that most people don't like their work and so they want to minimize it. And so he presents an approach in his book to getting your work done in as little time as possible so then you can do, do what you want with the rest of your time. Now that's not a very encouraging view of work, especially for those of us that are unable to shrink our work down into a mere four hours a week. And the good news is that's not a biblical view of work either. The biblical view of work is good news for people that aren't able to reduce their work to four hours a week, but do have to spend 40, 50, or 60 hours a week in their jobs. The biblical view of work is that that time we spend at work is meaning, is meaningful. It is meaningful in itself, not simply even as a means of making money and giving it away. Now, how do we know this? It comes from understanding what the Bible actually means by good works. So I read Ephesians 2.10 here about how we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. So what really are those good works? Are they just the spiritual activities we do, like going to church and praying and reading our Bible? And the biblical answer is no. And we see it right in our text. Back over in chapter 6, verse 8, Paul says we are to do our work knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So notice here, he's talking about our work, and he says, whatever good you do, you will receive back from the Lord. In other words, he's calling our work a good thing. That is, a good work. He's echoing back to chapter 2, verse 10, where he had said, we are created in Christ for good works. And here he's calling our work that we do in our jobs a good work. So good works are not just spiritual things you do or rare and special things like a missions trip to Africa. In Paul's view, good works are anything you do in faith for the good of others and the glory of God. It includes, therefore, what you do at work and in your jobs. What this means then, for example, is that when you're doing emails, you're not just doing emails, you're doing good works. When you're going to a meeting, you're not just going to a meeting, you're doing a good work. Even when you're commuting to work, if you do it in faith for the glory of God, you are doing a good work. Even tying your shoes is a good work if done for the glory of God. The biblical view is that good works are anything you do in faith. This then allows us to get rid of the compartmentalization 
of our lives. It helps us understand how to integrate these things like our jobs and the email we do and the meetings we go to with our faith. It shows us that those things are part of the purpose for which God created us in Christ. They are avenues, in other words, through which we can serve God and others. This is the Christian view of work, why our work matters and how our faith relates to our work. Our work is an avenue of serving others and an avenue for worship. Here's another way to look at it. Jesus said, the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So where do we do that? Well, the reformers like Martin Luther pointed out that the chief arena in which we love our neighbor is our vocations. Chief among them, our work, our jobs. So when you think about how do I love my neighbor, you don't have to only think about going off to doing a mission trip or running across a person in need lying on the side of the road like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's important. If you run into someone in need like that, help them. Provide what they need. Absolutely. But that's not the only way we love our neighbor. The Scriptures teach the chief context in which we love our neighbor is our work, is our jobs. This takes on, this causes our work to take on incredible significance. It means that we are able to do everything we do for the sake of serving others. It means that the work that we do takes on great significance because it can be done for the benefit of other people. The management thinker, Patrick Lencioni, who is a believer but doesn't write Christian books, he writes books for the general market, actually made this point very well in a book he has called The Three Signs of a Miserable Job. And I picked that book up when I had a miserable job and enjoyed it and it helped me very much. But at the end, there's just one page, which is very helpful, and it really turned the lights on for me for how to understand work. And that one page is called The Ministry of Management. And what he says there is revolutionary. He says, sometimes I felt a little guilty that I haven't gone into so-called giving professions, like being a missionary or a social worker or something like that. But he says, but then as I thought about it, I realized that maybe most of us already are in giving professions because we can see our work as a ministry, as a way of serving others. And then he applies it to management. And he says, because that's the topic of the book, he says, good management serves people. It makes their life better. And that has ripple effects over into their home lives and their communities. On the other hand, bad management is a disservice to people. It makes their lives worse and harder, and that has ripple effects over into their communities. So when we realize that we're able to do our work as a service to others, it means we're able to bring benefit to people through our jobs, and that brings great significance. We realize that we don't have to go into social work or missions or something like that in order to make a difference in our work. We're able to do good for others and glorify God directly in our jobs, no matter what they are, whether we are in the marketplace, whether you are an engineer, a doctor, even a lawyer, though sometimes that can be hard to understand. If you're an accountant, you're able to glorify God in your work itself. You don't have to 
relegate glorifying God to something outside of your work. It's something you can do in your work. And this breaks down the barrier between the sacred and secular. All lawful vocations can be done to the glory of God as long as our aim is to glorify Him and serve others. This is a revolutionary view of work. It also changes the way we go about our work. It leads to the second question. How do we glorify God in our work? What's it mean to go about your work in a Christian way? So, we've seen that you can glorify God in your work, but how do you do it? And what I want to give you here is a grid to take to your jobs. Even if you're a stay-at-home mom, whatever your work is, here's a grid you can take to that enables you to know how to glorify God in your work. First, we need to know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean inserting Jesus into every sentence. That's what I call being spiritually weird. And it's an error that we have to avoid. We have to do everything we can to avoid spiritual weirdness because it is a bad testimony to the gospel. What we need to realize is you don't glorify God in your work through things like trinkets, putting a fish on the back of your car, though it's okay if you have one of those, um, or playing the Christian radio station extra loud in your cubicle. That could actually end up annoying people, perhaps. Or by, you know, coming up with these, you know, wearing Christian t-shirts or other things like that. That's not the best way to glorify God in your job. The reason for this is that work is something that's valuable in itself. It doesn't have to be justified on the basis of its evangelistic usefulness. The creation mandate shows us this. Uh, which God gave before the fall in the sin. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. There's the authorization of work and creating culture. Um, so the work we do matters in itself. You don't have to feel guilty, if you're an accountant, you don't have to feel guilty that you're not teaching the Bible in your job. Work is justified and good in itself simply on the basis of creation. At the same time, work is, it is a platform through which the gospel spreads. You don't have to justify your work on that basis, but work does create an incredible opportunity for the gospel to spread. So how do we do that? Well, the background is, assuming that it becomes known in natural ways that you're a Christian, the chief way to advance the gospel through your work is to do work with excellence for the good of others. Chiefly, there are two things we need to know about how to do our work in order to glorify God. First, do your work as an offering to Christ. That's what it means to do something as worship. You do it as an offering to God. And this is easy to forget about. We can go about our day just thinking in terms of what we have to get done, not realizing God wants us to explicitly do it as an offering to Him. Uh, Jonathan Edwards makes a great point that the one you are worshiping in what you do is the one to whom you offer it to. And he says, if you do something for yourself, you are effectively operating as your own God. 
You are doing your work or whatever it is for your own ends and that means it's an offering to yourself and not to God. But if you do your work for God's ends and God's purposes and offer it to Him as you do it, then it becomes an avenue of worship. So worship becomes all of life and it encompasses our jobs. Worship is not just like in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices and things like that. Now, today, we are to offer ourselves as sacrifices to God and everything we do becomes something we can offer to God, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to Him in Jesus Christ, as First Peter says. That can include even emails and going to meetings. But you have to have a mindset of doing your work as an offering to God. It doesn't necessarily always have to be at the front of your mind, but you need to have that disposition in your heart that you're doing this for the Lord. And we see that right in our text. where Paul says it frequently. Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So there it is, especially explicit. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord. So do your work as to the Lord. Do it as an offering to Him. The second thing you need to know, though, is you need to do your work for the good of others. You need to offer to God the types of offerings that He actually wants. And that please Him. So mistreating your workers is not a good offering to offer. To God. Doing shoddy work is not a good offering to God. Doing half-hearted work is not a good offering to God. But we know that what, what God values, other than himself, above all things in creation is people. And he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the kinds of offering that God wants in our work is love. Loving our neighbor. And that applies at work. So the chief thing you need to remember is, and the mo- is to seek the good of others in your work. Now, what does that mean? What does it actually mean to seek the good of another person in your work? And here are a few things that it means. Number one, have a real desire to benefit your employer and customers. That's part of love. You desire the welfare of the other person. And we see it in chapter 6 here, where Paul says, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will. So there's love. Good will is love. You want the welfare of the other person. We also see right in this text that we are to do our work for the good of others, right when Paul says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. In that word, obey, that means serve. A lot of times we tend to reduce the biblical ethic to like the minimum. So we see obey and we think it just means do what you're told. But like as the reformers pointed out, like with the Ten Commandments, what God is doing when he forbids something is also commanding its opposite. So when he says, you shall not murder, for example, the command is not simply to refrain from killing people or harming them. It's a command to pursue their welfare, 
do the opposite of murder. Seek the welfare of other people. So also here, when Paul says, obey your earthly masters, it's a command to seek their welfare. Make their good the aim of what you do. Seek the good of others in your work. And that means, first of all, have their good as a genuine motive in what you do. Second, it means let what's good for them be your guide in deciding what to do. Find out the priorities of your employer and the customer and let that guide you. That's part of what it means to serve another person. Don't seek your own welfare and your own interests. Find out what will benefit them and do that. And the amazing thing is that that's actually also the best way to be effective at work and in your job. We know this, for example, like if you're applying for a job. On your resume, what you want to show is that you've been a benefit. You've been a benefit to your previous employers. No one wants to hire someone who's been a slacker and takes more than they provide in their jobs. Employers are on the lookout to hire people that will do good for them and make a contribution. That is, people who serve their employers, put them first. And in your job, the type of people that are going to be promoted are the type of people that are making a contribution, that are making things better off. Those are the type of people we like to promote and give more responsibility to. Whereas the people that are in it for themselves and aren't understanding the priorities of their employer and the customers are the people who aren't making such a great contribution and the people that, in general, we don't want to promote. So this actually leads to greater effectiveness in your job if you follow the biblical ethic. That's not ultimately the reason you do it, but it is often the result and consequence of it. Third, enjoy your work. Aim to do it from engagement, not just compliance. And we see this here all over the place. Paul is getting at our internal disposition here. He's saying, don't do your work in a grudging way. Do it from the heart. He says, obey your earthly masters with a sincere heart, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will. And then in verse... Um, well, yeah, and he goes on, as to the Lord and not to man. With a good will and a whole heart. We are to be wholehearted in the way we do our work. And you can do this even if you don't like your job. For example, one summer I had a job cleaning showers at a truck stop. And it wasn't very pleasant work. Uh, I did it because I needed to earn money quickly to get a car. And I had to, after the truckers were done showering, I had to go in and clean it all up, get the shower wiped down and everything, and it wasn't very appealing work. But I set the record for the number of showers cleaned in a day, because what I liked about the work is that it was very measurable, and you could kind of compete with yourself, go faster um, and see how fast you could get things done. So that's what I did, and it made it slightly enjoyable wasn't something I would have wanted to do for the long term, but it was enjoyable to turn it into something I can measure and, and kind of like 
a game. So I found a way to do it with my whole heart. Then they liked how fast I was doing the showers, so they promoted me to cashier. That's a classic mistake. Just because I was good at cleaning showers didn't mean I would be good at being a cashier. And I disliked the work of being a cashier. And I didn't exactly have a Christian perspective, unfortunately, and how I did things. I kind of let it get me down and didn't try as hard because I just I found it so exhausting and didn't like it. And then that actually resulted in being a bad witness because I was also being a youth pastor um, that summer, part-time at a local church. And they knew that. And here I was as a cashier, but not doing a very good job. That was a bad testimony to the gospel. What you want to do is be passionate about the work that you're doing. If you have a choice over what job to take, choose something that you will be passionate about. But if you don't have a choice, find something about your job that does make you passionate so you can do it from a whole heart. And simply understanding that the way you do things benefits people and serves them is something that is exciting in itself. So that's the type of thing that can make us excited. Fourth, take initiative and be proactive. So sometimes we look at this word obey, like I was saying, and we turn it down to just the minimum, thinking it just means do what you're told. But that's, again, not the meaning of obey, and that's not what an employer wants from a worker. An employer wants a worker that takes initiative, that sees problems and fixes them, and that sees opportunities and finds ways to seize those opportunities. And that's what Paul is commanding us to do here, because that's the real fullest meaning of obey, especially since it's really what employers want. And it's a result of doing your work with a sincere heart and doing it wholeheartedly. If you do your work with passion, you're going to be on the lookout for opportunities for how to do your work better, how to do it with excellence. That's a natural result of being passionate about what you're doing. That's the way we are to go about our work. Take initiative. I love the way Charles Spurgeon says it. He says, let us be on the lookout for opportunities to do good and not be content until we are useful. And what I'm trying to say is, do that in your jobs. Be on the lookout for ways you can serve people and do things more effectively. That is the type of thing employers want. It makes the whole workplace better and it's a good testimony to the gospel. Far better than having trinkets up on your cubicle wall. Other implications of this are we should care about things like excellence and usability. But this totally transforms the meaning of excellence. For example, we see that excellence isn't something that matters simply in itself, but excellence is actually a form of love. Excellence is a form of love because it serves people. Products that are created with excellence serve people better than products that are shoddy and half-hearted. If we care about loving people, that means we're going to care about doing our work with excellence and with passion. And we're going to care about details. Steve Jobs often talked about how when he was growing up, his father, who uh, sometimes if he would be building a cabinet or something like that, would, would say, you've got to give as much attention 
to the part that people won't see as you do to the part that people will see. And even though he wasn't trying to teach the Bible there or give a biblical perspective on work, that is very much in line with what the biblical perspective on work is because it has to do with excellence. Uh, Likewise, um, in the Middle Ages, when they were painting the ceilings of the great cathedrals, they'd give great attention to the parts that are way up there. No person is going to see. But they gave great attention to the detail because they knew that God saw. And that's again, is an example of excellence. You do things because they serve the work and are good in themselves, even if they aren't necessarily going to have an immediately impact on the person. But usually what ends up happening is if you do take a shortcut is it ends up screwing things up down the line at some point. Usability is also an important thing to think about when it comes to our work because the work products are things that we do in order to you know, meet a need. And if your products are hard to use, they don't meet a need very well. They can create problems, actually. And you can do the opposite of benefiting a person. You can be making their life worse. So when we were designing the Desiring God website back in 2006 that had all the all of John Piper's resources online for free, one of our focuses was to make that site as usable as possible. And that wasn't simply so that it would be more effective for us, though that was a result, but it was stemming from a very Christian ethic of loving our neighbor. If we love our neighbors, we will want to do things in a way that serves them and makes things easier for them rather than harder. So a Christian view of work rooted in love for others naturally leads to valuing things like excellence and usability and good design both because they matter in themselves and because they serve people better. So what you want to do with your job is go around with this grid. The grid of seeking the good of others in all the work that you do. So here's the way this works. If you have a bunch of emails to get through, don't just try to get them done to get them out of the way. Rather, try and do them in a way that will build people up and serve them. So try to respond to emails in a way that is encouraging for people. Recognize things that like being neutral in your email it actually comes across as negative a lot of the times and go out of your way to be positive in your emails. If you're in a meetings, everyone talks about how much they hate meetings. It takes them away from doing the rest of their work and sometimes meetings are long and boring. If you're in a meeting that's like that, don't just, you know, feel bad for yourself, but find a way to make it better. Because good meetings serve people. So find a way to contribute to the discussion. Find a way to solve the problems that are before you and to make it interesting. Find a way to make that meeting better so that things go better for the other people who are in the meeting. If you're creating a marketing plan, Don't just create a marketing plan that's designed to maximize the revenue for your company, even though that is an important and legitimate aim for business. Create a marketing plan that's going to treat the customers and users with respect. So that would mean even things like not using annoying pop-up ads on your website, because usually that's the the type of thing that just annoys the user who comes to your website. So you want to come up with a more creative way 
to get their attention rather than things that will annoy the person. So in everything you do, you want to do it in a way that serves the person and builds them up. If you're trying to come up with an idea for a new product, don't think simply in terms of, well, what will make the most money for us? Think, what are some legitimate needs that people have? And try to meet those needs. Again, because your work is an avenue through which you serve people. What an incredible privilege this is that every day we can get up and go to our jobs and serve people all day long, as well as earning a living. That's an amazing thing, an amazing concept. Well, what will the result of this be if we do our work in this way? This whole approach to work is based in virtue and character. It says that the way you glorify God in your work is by imitating his moral attributes, especially his attributes of love and diligence and excellence and concern for others. By imitating God in your work, you are glorifying him because you're showing what he's like. But what will the ultimate result of that be? And what Paul teaches is the ultimate result of this, if we work in this way, will be the transformation of the world. This is actually Paul's vision for how the world is transformed. Missions is critical, but what's the role of people who aren't missionaries? Is it just to give money to missions? And Paul's answer is no. They play a critical part in how the gospel spreads as well. And the reason is this. It is because it is in our work and vocations that we take the gospel into the world. For example, a business person who works at Target, that's a company headquartered where I used to live in Minneapolis. A business person who works there has natural relationships with far more unbelievers than most pastors would. Not every pastor. Some pastors are able to get involved in the community in a lot of ways. But in general, it's the non-pastors who are more out there involved among unbelievers and have more relationships and contact with non-believers because they work among non-believers. So your workplace becomes an incredible opportunity for you to live out your faith before unbelievers. It gives you access to far more relationships than you would have otherwise. Now, as I said earlier, you don't have to measure your success at work by the number of evangelistic conversations you have. Your work is valuable in itself. However, you do want to be on the lookout to advance your gospel, the gospel. And if you are doing your work well, as I've talked about, that is for the good of others, then that lends credibility to your profession of faith. So then you have earned the right, so to speak, to talk about your faith in the workplace. And if you bring it up in a winsome way, you're more likely to get a hearing because you have the respect of your coworkers. And because you have their respect, you're more likely to get a hearing and they're more likely to listen to what you have to say. And if thousands of Christians operate this way in their workplaces, then thousands and tens of thousands of people will hear the gospel that otherwise would not hear it. But notice how all of this would fail. All of this fails if we stink at our jobs. Because then we don't have the respect that earns a hearing from non-believers. And we don't have the respect that gives credibility to the gospel when we do 
explain it and talk about it with others. Shoddy work gets in the way of the gospel. It puts a it gives the gospel a bad name. But when people see that we are doing our work, even not just with excellence, but for the good of others, from a heart of love and joy, that's distinct. It stands out. It is something that sets us apart as Christians, especially when you're willing to do the hard jobs out of a motive of benefiting others. When you don't shrink away from the difficult tasks because it makes your life harder, but you're willing to make your own life harder to make the life of others easier... That, that exemplifies Christ's example, who took hardship on himself in order to serve us. So when you live in this way, it sets you apart in the real way that God wants you set apart as a Christian. Namely, by your love, not by the way you decorate your cubicle or what radio station you listen to. So this wins credibility for the gospel. But there's also another way it transforms the world. First, let me show you that it transforms the world. It is just not theory. If we go over to Matthew 5.16, where Jesus is giving us the Sermon on the Mount, which is like a charter for the Christian life. And Matthew 5.16 is where he gives us the purpose of our lives. And again, it goes back to good works. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So again, he's telling us the purpose of our lives is to do good works. Why? So that others will see them and give glory to God. Now, how does God get glory from our good works? Well, there's two ways. Peter actually picks this up. He alludes to this in 1 Peter. And here's what he says. 1 Peter 2.12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there he's echoing Matthew 5.16. See your good deeds and glorify God. But he gives us a little more context here. On the day of visitation, what's that mean? Well, there's, it probably means two things. First, the day of visitation may mean the day of judgment. When they see that they are without excuse for rejecting the message of the gospel because of the good behavior of Christians who proclaimed the gospel to them. That's one meaning. Another meaning may be, though, their conversion. It may mean, Peter may be saying, as they continue to see your good deeds, even in the midst of persecution and opposition, they will eventually come to faith. And thus glorify God. Glorify God by coming to faith. And we see this, an echo of this, over in chapter 3, where Peter is telling um, a wife who's married to an unbeliever how to live with that unbeliever. And listen to what he says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, so they're unbelievers, they, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their lives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So central to Peter's vision of how people come to faith is the way we live our lives. He's saying you can win your husband to the faith without a word by your conduct. That is, by your good deeds. 
So good deeds have a transforming effect. In Peter's view, they are essential to how the gospel spreads. And Paul, going back to Jesus in Matthew 5.16, I think it's right there as well, because when Jesus says, let your light shine, what's the light there that's shining? It's the light of our good deeds, the light of the gospel shining through our behavior. And what does light do? What does light do? This is fascinating because this connects to Paul's vision of how the world changes. And it's right in line with what, what we saw in Peter. Earlier in chapter 5, so right before Paul gets to this instruction on work, here's what he says. He's talking about how to live among unbelievers. And he says, Don't become partakers with them in sin. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. So good ethical behavior and conduct. And he says, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now what's that mean? That seems kind of strange, because Paul's saying... Anything that becomes visible is light. That is like, almost at first can sound kind of Gnostic. What's he saying here? J.B. Phillips, in his translation, captures Paul's point perfectly. When he says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. What he means is, after all, when the light of the gospel shines through your behavior it can turn other people into light. That is, it can make them Christians. Earlier, Paul said, you are light in the Lord. So one way of describing Christians is to describe them as light in the Lord. And here when he says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. He's saying, unbelievers who are walking in darkness can be transformed into light, that is, Christians, as your light shines. And how does our light shine? It shines not only through our words, which are essential, but through our deeds, through our behavior. And that's why Paul goes on to say, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So Paul, again, is connecting our behavior as Christians to how the gospel spreads. So here's how all this comes together. We can't simply think in terms of proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers, as important as that is, it is essential. No one comes to faith through the behavior of Christians alone. They have to hear the gospel and believe it. But the question is, what lends credibility to our proclaiming of the gospel? And the answer of the New Testament is, it's our behavior. And what kind of behavior? And where? Where do, where do we do this behavior that gives credibility to the gospel? And the answer of the New Testament is, well, in your vocations, which includes your job. Since good works are anything you do in faith, and good works include the works you do at your literal work, at your job, the behavior that shines the light of the gospel and turns people into Christians includes the way you do your work. So that's why this is so important. If you catch this vision for work and seek the good of others, 
in all that you do at work, the light of the gospel will shine through your behavior and some people will start coming to faith. People will come to faith through your faithfully living out your Christian faith at work. And if thousands of Christians do this, we can have the great movement of God in the workplace that Billy Graham talked about and hoped to see. This is how the Gospel changes the world at work. When you do your work for the good of others, the light of the Gospel shines, and this is how God ultimately transforms the culture. So to bring this to conclusion, our work matters because it is part of the good works that we do and that we're created in Christ to do. That also means we need to do our work in a certain way, in a Christian way. But doing it in a Christian way doesn't mean what we might first think, namely inserting Jesus into as many sentences as we can or putting up trinkets. Rather, it means doing your work for the good of others, reflecting the character of Christ in the way you do your work. And as we do this, the light of the gospel shines through our behavior and God transforms the world. So now, tomorrow morning, when you get up and go to work, go into your work with a mindset of doing it for the good of others, to make a contribution, to make others better off, to make your boss better off, to make your employers better off, or your, your co-workers better off, if you manage people, to make the people you manage better off. Continually have a mindset of making people better off, because that's what love is. As you do that, you will find great meaning and excitement in your work, because it is exciting to serve people and do them well, though it, and serve them well, though it is also hard. And as you do this, not only will you find more meaning and fulfillment and joy in your work, but you will begin to see, if you persevere in this and pray for people and look for appropriate opportunities to speak up about the gospel, as you continue to do your work in this way, you will see people come to faith and you will see God transform your workplace and ultimately the world. So this is kind of a, a corny way to say it at the end, but it's exactly what my Matthew 5.16 is saying. Go light up your world in the workplace, by doing all that you do with excellence for the glory of God and good of others.